when you're up against the horrific uh, uh, and the deep-pocketed uh, resources of the uh, of the federal government and these uh, really sadistic, uh, arrogant, politically motivated prosecutors. It's and uh, I had a biased judge. I had a stacked jury. I had a a corrupt jury forewoman. Uh, as my friend Tucker Carlson said, my trial was over before it started. That was Roger Stone talking to Fox News host Sean Hannity Monday night in his first interview since President Trump commuted his sentence just days before he was slated to go to federal prison for lying to Congress and intimidating a witness. Stone echoed the talking points that have become a mantra for the MAGA crowd, that everything about Robert Mueller's nearly two-year-long investigation was a politically motivated hoax and a witch hunt, all designed to undermine the Trump presidency. But Stone's protest should also be seen as another chapter in an extraordinary career stretching nearly half a century, marked by bluster, dirty tricks, and performance art, all of which made him an invaluable political mentor to his longtime friend, Donald Trump. We'll talk to veteran political reporter Howard Feynman, who knows Stone as well as anybody, and we'll talk to our Yahoo News colleague Alex Nazarian about the latest extremely depressing coronavirus news on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clyde, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined uh, today by the aforementioned Alex Nazarian. Alex, welcome back to Skullduggery. Michael, thank you. Um, you know, I don't know what we will find to talk about on this uh, on this slow news day that, you know, has the world in chaos yet again. So, Alex, I think you're calling in from California and um, I see, I see you on video here because we're doing this on uh, on Zoom. You also happen to be wearing a California T-shirt. Do you always wear the name of the state that you're in emblazoned on your T-shirt wherever you are? Especially if I'm in Washington D.C., which is, the, which is soon <laughs> going to be the 51st state. Um, I don't know if am I allowed to make endorsements of political agendas like that. Well, I just um, we are all. Isakoff and I are longtime D.C. residents. I live in Brooklyn now, but we are in Skullduggery supports statehood. Oh, we do? Well, I was going to say we only disavow and skewer political agendas on this podcast. <laughs> we do not endorse them. But let's start out with a uh, pretty juicy target, Roger Stone, who unbowed is, uh, you know, came out blazing on Hannity, denouncing the Mueller investigation, uh, claiming he'd been set up by overzealous prosecutors. And this is pretty much going to be, I think, a central theme that we're going to be hearing not just from him and Sean Hannity, but from the president himself and his campaign from now through Election Day. 
You know, Roger Stone, the longtime self-described dirty trickster, could not have written the script better. This is classic Stone, you know, kind of like performance art all the way through. And he probably knew from the beginning that he would either be pardoned or have his sentence commuted. And he would emerge unbowed and unrepentant and go back to his dirty trickster ways. And I think that's what we're going to see. I think, you know, just another (laughs) truly remarkable aspect of this is it looks pretty clear that Trump, who talked repeatedly to Stone seeking his advice during the 2016 campaign, and we've learned more about that in just the last few days. We'll be talking to Howard Feynman about that. But Trump will be turning to Stone time and again now through November, given the chaos within his own campaign, given you know all the backbiting going on over uh, within his campaign campaign over Brad Parscale's leadership and, you know, the tensions at the higher levels of the Trump campaign. So we're in a situation where the president of the United States is almost certainly going to be routinely consulting with a convicted felon through the election. I'm not aware of a precedent for that. Maybe there is, but it is, uh, you know, certainly a noteworthy situation. Dick Dick Morris was not a convicted felon, but I will say... He was a convicted toe sucker, as I recall it. Uh, That's still not a crime in America, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I want to see the original 2015 Trump team back. Jason Miller, who is back, Corey Lewandowski... Steve Bannon, Sam Nunberg, and of course, the original Trump run for president guy, Roger Stone, who was doing it back in, well, 88, right? We're telling him to, to run. I can't remember how far back. but Well, I was going to say that to the extent that Trump maintains the kind of current campaign team he has with Brad Parscale and some of the others, I think they'll be just about as happy having Roger Stone you know, kind of floating around as the Clinton people were about having Dick Morris back in the day, which is to say, not very happy at all. But who knows? Roger Stone may be uh, running the campaign for all we know a couple, right. of, a couple of months from now. By the way, uh, Nazarian, you had a little bit of um, trivia about this commutation because Stone could still, I think this is maybe not going to happen, but just because he's been his sentence has been commuted doesn't mean he could not also be pardoned, correct? And there is limited but some precedent for that. Yes, uh, that precedent being one, uh, Patricia Hearst, Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped by the Sindhianese Liber- Liberation Army, a group of you know, radicals or revolutionaries. Um, and she was, her sentence was, commuted by Jimmy Carter, and she was pardoned by Bill Clinton, becoming the first person in U.S. history to have that distinction. And would, would it not be amazing if Roger Stone and Patty Hearst were in, um, in each other's company? That is a presidential ticket right there. Right, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that Stone probably can't count on any future president pardoning him the way uh, Patty Hearst was able to get a pardon. So if he if he doesn't get it before Trump leaves the White House, whether that's in January of next year or uh, four years after that, I think it's fair to say he's not going to get it at all. Unless he gets it from President Don Trump Jr., Yeah, Don Trump Jr. Look, um, but, you know, there's a big reason why Trump is in 
political trouble right now, and it goes well beyond uh, Robert Mueller and his investigation, and that's the coronavirus uh, pandemic, which only seems to be getting worse and worse by the day. And the epicenter at the moment seems to be in Florida, where the case numbers are through the roof. I think we were over 15,000 new cases in one day over the weekend. Alex, you've got some new reporting about the situation in Florida and somebody who was trying to warn about it and what happened to her. Tell us about that. Well, Rebecca Jones was a climatologist with the Department of Health, and she created the state's coronavirus dashboard. And that dashboard was praised by Deborah Burks of the White House Task Force and others for its clarity, for its uh, frequency of its updates, for its look. And uh, Dr. Jones, who has a PhD in geography, was ultimately fired from her job in early May because, according to her allegations, she was asked to manipulate numbers to facilitate Governor Ron DeSantis's reopening plan. You will recall that DeSantis, along with Brian Kemp of Georgia and Greg Abbott of Texas, was among the first governors to reopen, bucking the advice of most public health officials. And uh, Jones was stood in the way of that, at least according to her version of events, and uh, refused to change numbers, refused to take down numbers, and uh, is no longer with the department. Now has her own dashboard, which is sort of her way of trolling DeSantis and showing him that she can do the job that, sort of independently, that she was doing for him. So, uh, Alex, uh, does she allege, and is there evidence to support? The idea that DeSantis and officials, other officials in Florida, used data that was essentially cooked to uh, justify what now appears to be the disastrous decision to to reopen before they should have. I would say less cooked than deep fried, taken out of the fryer, deep fried again, and then put under the broiler. Yes, she says, as she was being told to manipulate numbers. In the same room, there were people stapling reopening plans that were about to be distributed. And I have seen uh, text messages she sent to her boss, Craig Curry, saying, how do I file a whistleblower complaint? I'm really concerned about what's happening here. Now, she never filed that complaint. She was fired, I think, a day or two after that text message. And she does have an attorney. They haven't filed suit, but I expect one is coming very shortly. She's furious at DeSantis. She is, but mostly she's just sad for her state, right? It's a, it's the state where she lives. It's the state where her grandparents live. Uh, her parents live in Mississippi. And she says, we didn't want to be right about this. We wanted to be wrong. But I should uh, point out, Alex, this is coming on a day that Florida just reported, this is on Tuesday now, over 9,000 new cases and 132 deaths in the state of Florida reported in one day. I think that, as I'm looking at the numbers, is a record for the state. And 
chips away at the idea that while the case totals are increasing, the death totals are continuing to decline. That's true nationally. But when I see that number, 132, that seems to undermine that narrative quite a bit. I mean, DeSantis really stands out in that group of sort of southeastern Republican governors. Others, including Abbott, other, other Republican governors in the southeast have said, wear a mask. They've actually imposed orders regarding masks, and they've taken the pandemic much more seriously than DeSantis has. He's continued to, I would say, downplay and minimize, and that really makes him now a, a pretty lone standout in that swath of the country that's still dealing with, um, with the coronavirus pretty intensely. I mean, that makes Dr. Jones's arguments all the more urgent because she's warning that we still can't trust the integrity of those numbers. Well, I see that in Texas, for example, Mark McClellan, I think is the same Mark McClellan who ran um, Medicare, I think, under the George W. Bush administration um, and is a you know pretty well-respected public health official, is advising Abbott or saying that they might well get to the point where they have to essentially reshut everything down again. Is that what Florida needs to do now? I mean, and is there any chance that DeSantis would go that far, or is that just not going to happen? To answer your first question, yes. To answer your second question, no. That is what they need to do because cases are surging in uh, Miami-Dade and Broward and South Florida in particular, and they need to shut it down. They can't be hosting big conventions and sports events. It just doesn't make sense. And what the real worry is that those once the virus sort of jumps to the really vulnerable communities, the elderly populations in Florida, that's when we will really start to see the fatality counts rise. That's what epidemiologists are worried about, that it's still contained, however, barely, and that we're about to lose that containment in places like Florida. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, you mentioned sporting events and other public events. The uh... Republican National Convention is still slated to take place in late August in in Jacksonville. Yeah, I know that the Trump campaign has been talking about moving it to an outdoor venue. We'll see what happens with that. But New York Times is reporting that many senior Republicans have just decided that they're not going. What's going to happen? <laughs> well, if I knew that, I'd be uh, <laughs> I'd probably have a head. What do I think is going to happen? You know, I would not be surprised if this thing were scotched. Um, I know a lot of Republicans. I've, I know Republicans are watching to see what happened in New Hampshire over the past weekend to see how that rally would go. Well, the rally was canceled. They said because of the weather. Everybody knew it was because their ticket sales were not where they wanted them to be. So I think a lot of people don't want to show up in A, a coronavirus hotspot, B, in a sort of to be partake in a dud. So that that sort of look, they could get their cases down, and I hope they do, RNC notwithstanding. But it's just they're just not doing that work. And if they're not willing to do that work now, why would it be safe for people to come there in August? Hey, uh, Alex, back to Rebecca Jones for a moment. What numbers specifically was she saying she was asked to uh, alter or were altered? There were specifically the first instance of number altering or book cooking had to do with rural counties that did not meet criteria for reopening. And what she was told, she alleges, is we can't tell Miami-Dade and other 
urban democratic strongholds to reopen while other counties, she mentioned Sewanee County, which is a rural county, and um, I think she mentioned Jackson County as well. But but she, there's a list of counties. They said they're not meeting these benchmarks, so we need to change the benchmark because we need to tell them they are able to reopen. And who was who is she saying this was coming from? Who directed her to do this? Political appointees at the Department of Health. She was never clear about how involved the governor's office was specifically, but of the several meetings she told me in which she was told to manipulate numbers, there was someone from the governor's office there. So clearly they knew. And look, I mean, this is not new. There's an incredible clip online that uh, you guys and your listeners should watch where um, the Surgeon General of Florida is speaking and uh, he's saying something sort of not critical of the governor's response, just critical of the situation. And he's just uh, the the, the Sandy's press secretary comes over and essentially ushers him out of the meeting. I mean, it's just an astonishing thing to to see. So what does the governor's office say about Rebecca Jones's allegations? You'll be shocked to learn that they deny all of them. And DeSantis has really taken on all of the trappings of Trumpism, and they have attacked Jones relentlessly. They have suggested that she's insubordinate, although she was not fired for insubordination. I've seen the firing. I've I've seen the dismissal letter. It's just, it's an at-will employment uh, state, and she was just terminated without any explanation. There was no, there was no insubordination, at least listed as a, as a fireable offense. They have also launched a, somebody has launched, I believe it was the governor's office. It it appears to have been in any case, a a sort of a smear campaign about her personal life and a contentious relationship that she says was abusive. So there've been some press reports depicting her as a cyber stalker. In my many, many conversations with her at this point, I've just never found her to be anything but, um, you know, just incredibly articulate, gracious, committed to science and to Florida. So the attacks on her character seem to me especially off. And uh, I think they, they, I think they've proven quite harmful to her because she does have children and a husband and she's been in the sort of in the tabloid press. And uh, yeah, I mean, DeSantis has attacked her personally. Um, so it's, I think it's been quite difficult for her, but she is trying to vindicate herself and the integrity of her work. Well, before we uh, move on, Alex, I want to just shift gears for a minute to another dimension of this coronavirus story, and that is what appeared to be happening uh, to Tony Fauci over the weekend, which is to say a, apparently a concerted <laughs> political campaign by the Trump administration to undermine his credibility anonymously, going to reporters with a um, talking point, essentially, about things that he had gotten wrong over the course of this pandemic, particularly in in the early days. What is going on there? And what is the state of that relationship? And what is the, you know, the meaning of of all of this? Yeah, uh, it's just um, you know when when I when I was reporting on this last Friday, I asked about Fauci and uh, whether he his status was safe, and I got nothing back from the White House, even from people who are usually pretty quick to to sort of push back on any suggestion of discord in the coronavirus task force. But that's just no longer 
any kind of suggestion that all is well is just doesn't fly. I, I think uh, I think he will stay on the task force because getting rid of him right now from the task force would just be a frankly a crazy thing to do. Just a crazy thing to do. As much as Trump is jealous of his approval ratings. What would others on the task force, and I'm thinking particularly of Deborah Burks, do if uh, Fauci was kicked off? You know, Burks is a complex character. I don't know. I think she would stay on. I think it's more of what would the, I think the public dismay would be so great that Trump would see further eroding of his of, you know, of his, of his trustworthy, trustworthiness, such as it already is. This is like echoes of, of Mueller. You know, Trump is like brooding, going on the, around yeah. the White House, probably saying he wants to fire right. Fauci. Hashtag fire Fauci, which was, was trending on Twitter a while back. And his advisors are like, you know, pulling their hair out saying, you can't do this. It'll cost us the election. You know, you'll be impeached. <laughs> And Trump is thinking, I've lo- already lost the election. <laughs> what do I care? Right. Did you see Dan Scavino, one of his top and longest serving aides, tweeted out an image very critical of Fauci, calling him uh, Dr. Fawcett for his leaks, uh, which is sort of just a silly gripe. The guy who's been fighting infectious disease for six different presidents, you know, for 40 years now. But that's... It's the Scavinos of the world who ultimately have Trump's ear, the, the, the long-standing MAGA loyalists. And so if Fauci goes, don't be incredibly surprised. I won't be. Gee, who should we get our public health information from? Tony Fauci or Dan Scavino? Chuck Woolery, apparently. <laughs> or, Chuck, or, or game show host Chuck Woolery. Can't make this shit up. Yeah. Yeah. Who's this guy, Woolery? I saw Trump was retweeting him <laughs> the other day. Can can you uh, explain this to us, Alex? He's a former game show host who is now an outspoken supporter of the president. He tweeted oh, a couple of days ago that everyone is lying about the coronavirus, including the CDC. Now, people may not know this, to use a term from the president, but the, the CDC is part of the federal government that is run by the president. So for the president to say that they are lying is a very strange thing, right? Because it is his agency. But he has long believed there's, he believes there's a deep state in any agency that is not doing exactly what he says. Right. The And the, the specific tweet that Trump retweeted from Woolery in which as you mentioned, he he Willery accuses everybody of lying about COVID nineteen. The CDC, media, Democrats are doctors, and then he goes on to say, "I think it's all about the election and keeping the economy from coming back, which is about the election." I'm sick of it. So basically, the argument here is that Democratic doctors are lying about COVID in order to swing the election to Joe Biden and defeat Donald Trump. The president himself has implicitly endorsed this conspiracy theory by retweeting this guy, Woolery. It's um, rather remarkable. I just want to point out that, uh, yeah, I like your phrasing of the like, like, who is this mm-hmm. Chuck Woolery? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Clearly meant to disguise the fact that you were a regular washer of the love connection, <laughs> the, da- the dating game that he was, yeah. that, he, that, he, that he used to host. I you know? know nothing. I know yeah. nothing. 
Right. Well, we've gone um, from well on this podcast so far. We've gone from toe sucking to the love connection. So <laughs> there's got to be a title in there somewhere. All right, I, I think we should. I think we should pull the plug at this point <laughs> and, and get to our serious guest. <laughs> yeah. I'd like, I just one one final question. When will this podcast discuss Washington D.C.'s push to uh, legalize uh, psychedelic mushrooms, which, which is on the um, ballot in November? Uh, the next uh, the next time you're on, Alex, uh, you will be. Uh, be grilled on that uh, and we expect you to be totally up on it but remember we do not endorse on this podcast we only debunk um alex nazarian thanks again for joining us on skullduggery and we will have you back soon bye bye guys We now have with us our longtime Newsweek colleague, veteran political reporter Howard Feynman. Howard, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. I, I kind of am imagining that we're standing in the hallway in the Newsweek Washington Bureau trying to <laughs> figure out how to cover Roger Stone. I mean, nothing changes. Yeah, but the only the, the only thing that's different is back then uh, a lot of the skullduggery was being employed by Isakoff himself inside the Washington bureau, <laughs> a, a, aimed aimed at me when I was his boss. Yeah, well, <laughs> I had uh, Hosenball as cover for much of that. Um, but uh, anyway, so listen, Howard, let's start out with your conversation with Roger Stone on Friday evening last, just a few hours before the commutation comes down. You called him up. Tell us about what happened. Well, I called him, I guess, sometime between 5 and 6 o'clock p.m. on, on Friday. The news broke, I think, around uh, closer to 7 o'clock. So I think by the time I, I got to him, and uh, he already knew exactly what was happening. And indeed, he sort of had a relaxed demeanor about him, which led to some of the colorful things he said to me, I think, because he was feeling pretty good because he had uh, already gotten, uh, uh, I'm almost positive, the official word. And what he said was, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't going to turn on Donald Trump. And uh, I could have eased my situation substantially, I think is what he said, but I wouldn't do it. And he said I wasn't going to become Judas. And he also said that he, I think he used the number 29 or 30 conversations with Trump during uh, the campaign. That, I caught that. Yes. That was quite, uh, that was new information that he was always dodgy. I mean, I talked to him quite a bit during that period and he was always yeah. dodgy about how much he was in direct communication yes. with, with Trump. But here he's telling you, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. And I think the fact that he had that many conversations. Now, the reason strategically he told me that, Mike, I think, looking back on it, is that there are only there may be only one or two sort of semi-smoking gun conversations that had legal consequence for Donald Trump, uh, and I've been, since looked into it a little bit, and I think the key conversation may well have been one in the summer of uh, 2016, after Stone I think had learned even more specifically about what WikiLeaks had and what they wanted to do. He talked to Trump, and and, and Donald Trump's uh, written testimony or answers to the prosecutors, Trump said that he didn't recall 
and couldn't remember, didn't recall, et cetera, that he'd ever had any conversation with Roger Stone concerning that. And uh, it's pretty clear that in the summer of, of 2016, Stone and Trump had talked about WikiLeaks. So I think it's possible that one of the things that Trump was trying, the reason why Stone said, hey, I had 29 or 30 conversations, is he was trying to reduce the import of any one of them legally. But I, I agree, he inadvertently said something very important. So, Howard, in either in your conversation with uh, Stone, which, you know, we know was at least a short amount of time before the commutation was announced, um, but he probably already knew about it, or in subsequent interviews or any other statements that um, Stone has made that you've seen, did you get the sense that he was fully expecting a commutation or pardon or that he was uncertain or that, you know, he was surprised? Because, of course... The question looming over all of this is whether it was a quid pro quo that he was rewarded for not turning on Trump. Well, first of all, I think in general, he was definitely rewarded for not turning. I think that the president himself made it clear his preference for uh, people who aren't rats, as he put it. And uh, Stone had positioned himself from the beginning as a non-rat. So I think he earned... Uh, in that sense, in the general sense, yes, it, it, it was. More specifically, it's not clear to me that, that Stone knew before maybe the last week or so leading up to this that it was, that it was almost certainly going to happen and may not have known till near the very end that it definitely was going to happen because my understanding is, and I haven't done enough original reporting of this on my own, but my understanding is there were plenty of people around Trump who did not want this to happen. And I would assume that uh, Jared Kushner is one of them, and I would assume that there are plenty of other people who did too. So I think it was a somewhat close-run thing, but I think Stone never had doubt in Trump. But in the meantime, he uh, decided to put his faith in Jesus as well, and God bless him for that. Yeah, talk yeah, about that, that was the other little uh, news bit uh, from your interview that uh, Stone tells you he's found Jesus Christ. Yes, and he, he lumps Jesus Christ and Donald Trump together. So I guess that pretty much explains the Republican political strategy of the last several years, as incongruous as that grouping may be to some. I'm not one, nobody should question another man's profession of faith. And if Roger says he's uh, found the Lord through uh, the ministry of Franklin Graham, which is what he uh, is, has explained publicly and what he was telling me, then uh, I... I have no reason to doubt that it's 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 at least possible. Uh, what the way I wrote it in the Washington Post was uh, a little cheeky, but you know, I'm not going to deny the possibility. But it's interesting. I think I think Stone was genuinely worried that he might end up in jail, as any person would be. I don't think he knew for sure until a couple days, maybe a day or two before. But by the time I talked to him, he definitely did. But in general terms, his whole strategy was to demonstrate to the president in every way he could, dramatically as possible, in court, in before the committee, in public, on TV, in any and all ways, that he was not going to cooperate with the investigators. Now, in terms of turning and flipping and ratting out the president, I don't think that Stone, well, I know that Stone insists that he didn't have any kind of testimony to give that would prove collusion, that would prove criminality directly through links to Russia, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I think what he was afraid of was, number one, that conversation in the summer of 2016, and any other, and, if, and that if he talked to the prosecutors about what he now says are 29 or 30 different conversations with the president, that that would inevitably, inevitably trip the president up and tangle him up in the knots that he even Trump could not get out of. Is there a trap door beneath which there's a whole other level of criminality in terms of relations to Russia? I don't think so. I, I think this is in the nature, to me, this whole case is more about kind of receiving stolen property. Uh, and I'm, I'm surprised that the Mueller team didn't frame it that way for the public. Because it's clear to me that Stone and everybody else knew that the stuff that they were getting was ill-gotten in some way, whether it was hacked uh, online or whether somebody recorded a, a thumb drive and took it out of the DNC, whatever, it was stolen property in, a, in essence. And that's what the Trump people did. So, Howard, right. let's talk about who Roger Stone is for a moment here, because you've covered him for a long time. Long you've time. Known, you've known him for a very long time. And, you know, while we also don't want to question his faith, we wouldn't do that on Skullduggery, it strikes me, and I was talking to Isakoff about this before, that for a long time there has been a performative aspect to who he is. And so I guess the question I want to ask you is, what is it about Roger Stone that led him to the situation that he found himself in? If, if he was not covering up any criminality or bad behavior, why did he lie about all the things he lied about? Well, I think the main reason was he wanted to prove to the president that he wasn't going to cooperate in any way, shape, or form, because I think he realized that his ultimate salvation, at least here on Earth, uh, was Donald Trump. And uh, I, I think Roger is perfectly capable of being involved in very nasty stuff, and I think he has been over the years. I mean, I think the thing with Roger is that he grew up sort of on the wrong side of the tracks in a, in a wealthy enclave in Pound Ridge, New York, up there were all the fancy old Yankees and uh, new money are. And his dad was basically a, uh, a maintenance guy and an, a water driller, a water well driller, and a, and a guy who took care of the football team field for the high school. And Roger had uh, no money and was full of resentment for all of the uh, rich kids and powerful kids in the high school. And he took it upon himself to be the bad boy from the beginning, the conservative, anti-liberal, anti-establishment Republican. In other words, he's going to take on the, 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 the Republican establishment, Yankee Republican establishment. Yeah. Kind of the perfect um, background and, and early resume to become a dirty trickster for Richard Nixon. Well, he, he absolutely admired Nixon. All of the uh, right-thinking moderate Republicans, the Rockefeller Republicans and the liberal Democrats up there in Pound Ridge despised Nixon despised Whitaker Chambers, the guy who'd uh, testified against Alger Hiss, and that Nixon had, you know, and Nixon had gone after Hiss. That whole sort of brew of resentment against the establishment, Roger imbibed that. He grew up on it. He, it was his mother's milk. He, he, he swallowed that whole. So he loved Chambers. He loved uh, Hoover. He loved Nixon. He loved uh, these guys all, and, and people like Roger Stone read books about Russian spies and 
how they were trying to undermine America and how the establishment wouldn't understand it and the establishment was either blind to or in cahoots with. You know, the whole conspiratorial frame of mind that Donald Trump has, Roger Stone grew up with. And when I first wrote about Roger Stone, I wrote about him in 1986, I think, for The New Republic. Even though I was working for Newsweek, I did a side piece for The New Republic detailing the efforts of Roger Stone and his cronies from the college Republicans, uh, which had been taken over by the crazy right, to rig a straw poll at the Conservative Political Action Conference in favor of uh, Jack Kemp, who was their, their candidate. And, you know, Lord knows all the little tricks that Roger pulled dirty and otherwise to rig the election. But when I first wrote about him rigging an election in 1986, so, you know, in a, in a way, nothing ever changes. Nothing, <laughs> nothing a, ever changes. a continuity there. You know, right. I, I don't mean to exonerate the guy in any way, but I, I, but I just don't know. I don't, I, Mueller didn't find, and I don't think that it was, it was Roger's lack of cooperation that prevented Mueller from finding, that there was, in fact, a direct connection between what the Russians or their agents were doing to get the emails and, and trash Hillary and the operation of the Trump campaign. Again, I put it down more as receiving, knowing, knowingly receiving stolen property. That's what they did. I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is Mueller could never even prove that Stone actually did communicate with WikiLeaks or Julian Assange. He tried to. There's right. no question about it. He tried to get Jerome Corsi to uh, intervene and, and find out what Julian Assange had. He tried to get Randy Credico to intervene and find out what Assange had. He blatantly lied to Congress when he was asked about his efforts to right. learn what WikiLeaks had. But as much as Mueller's team was determined to try to prove that there was a real connection there, they never could do so. They even drafted a, uh, a, a draft indictment for Corsi to try to get him to fess up that, yes, there were communications, but you know they never brought it because they couldn't prove it. So that's the, the sort of hole you know, the, in the Mueller case, but they were saved by the fact that Stone gave them their case on a silver platter because he brazenly lied and he lied repeatedly to Congress about what he was trying. To right. Do. Exactly. Well, as uh, as somebody said, the cover up is always worse than the crime. Right. So right. I, I, this is this is 100 percent. I mean, I, I, and I will yeah. say this, I. I from the Justice Department people, the, the career people that I know in the Justice Department, they think Stone is the worst malefactor of all, of all of them, for, in their view, because he trashed the judge, he trashed the jury system, he trashed the whole edifice, you know, the whole machinery of justice in America. He, th he thumbed his nose at them unnecessarily, in other words, un rather, uh, you're saying, somewhat unnecessarily, perhaps, he... He took on the whole justice system and used all of his dirty, you know, all of his tactics, all of his dirty stuff, all of the Roger Stone kicking and punching in every direction at one time to go after the judge, which is a no-no, to go after the jury by name, really, and to attack the whole system. So they, my understanding is the pressure on, that there was some pressure on Barr to get to step in the way because the career people are really almost more upset about the Stone 
commutation than anything else. That's what I've heard. I don't. I, I, yeah, I, and know, Barr's yeah. always already got a massive revolt inside the building there, uh, the Justice mm-hmm. Department from career people. So that wasn't going to help. So I got to ask you how he. He was. Uh, it's a commutation. It's not a pardon. So the conviction still stands. I think he's suggested that he would not continue to appeal. But who knows? H- how is he going to think about this conviction for Roger Stone? Is it is it a uh, badge of honor for him? Is it is he going to wear it uh, like he does that Nixon tattoo on his back? <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I-, I think to the extent that Donald Trump would want him to continue this as a way to agitate and motivate part of the base, Trump's base. Number one, that would be one reason why Stone would continue this. Number two, even though Stone said to me, uh, said to uh, one of the interviewers that I was uh, quoting in the piece about his future, Stone says, uh, the old Roger Stone would have sought vengeance. The new Roger Stone realizes that that's in the hands of the Lord, et cetera. I, I'm not sure I buy that. <laughs> I'm, I was a, just I'm a little say. skeptical. Yeah, I mean, Roger's a vind- Roger's a vind- may well be in order here. He yeah. lives. He lives on vindictiveness, as indeed Donald Trump does. And one of the things that the two of them share is a mentality to destroy anybody who tries to destroy them. And so I think he's going to run a campaign against the prosecutors. I think he will mention them by name. Uh, he's going to go after Weissman again, and uh, who I think just had a piece, an op-ed piece uh, about Trump, about Roger. So that war, the war between yeah. Roger and Weissman and a couple of the other prosecutors who Stone will run around uh, the internet naming is going to continue. Howard, is that a proxy war in a sense yes, uh, to go after Biden and to help Trump help Trump? Because I guess yes. one thing I'm wondering is whether Trump is going to keep. Is this a way for Trump to he's got to keep maybe some distance from Roger, but he also wants Roger helping? Yes, he wants Roger to do whatever Roger to continue what Roger Stone has been doing, which is to attack the credibility of the entire justice system. You know, that that's what he's going to do. And, and, and having having commuted the sentence Roger is now imbued with a sense of righteous indignation that he was using on Hannity last night. It's going to, you're going to hear it over and over. And to the extent that Stone has any credibility, even on Fox, they will use it to agitate against the justice system. In other words, there, it's an extraordinary thing where the president of the United States, one of the main pillars of his campaign messaging is attacking the system of justice. I mean, if you watched Hannity last night, as we did because Roger was on, Hannity was saying, and Roger was egging him on, they were egging each other on, to say that the justice system is rigged. The justice system is rigged. That's their campaign. That's a big part of their campaign. And um, if you think that Trump's whole idea is to take down established guidelines in society, so that he can rule in the chaos, which is, happens to be my particular theory and a lot of other people's. This is perfectly a part of that. So, yes, Stone will keep agitating how much, uh, Danny, he's going to pursue the actual appeal. I don't know. He may. He may. He may. But as he well knows, if it's another trial, it could end up being worse. So it seems to me that this is kind of central to Trump's political strategy at this point. He doesn't have much uh, (laughs) to work with, given uh, the 
course of the COVID uh, pandemic and the economy and everything falling apart is sagging poll numbers. So what does he have beyond attacking the system that has come after him? And, you know, Mueller stands as exhibit A. They're going to try to portray it as a as this sort of politically motivated witch hunt from the get go. But I just wonder, as you look at the political landscape right now, is this going to help him much? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think we're way beyond all this. I think this whole story, as much as I am fascinated by it, at this point is kind of a footnote in the much larger uh, narrative of what's going on in the country. I mean, you've got a situation where the schools weren't going to open, where people aren't going to be able to go back to work because they don't have childcare, where kids aren't going to be learning, where COVID is not under control, where the president's basic functions to... Pre- as he defined it, to protect the country. It's actually to protect the Constitution, but to protect the country, he's failed at. And that's that's where this is all at. To the extent that Trump and Stone egg each other on in their resentment of the courts and the juries and the prosecutors, they're digging themselves in, they're digging themselves in deeper. And I'm mystified by Trump's whole strategy. I know that he defied conventional wisdom and did it this way in 2016. I just think that the lay of the land is such that the Stone story and the Mueller story and all that is too small. However, the larger point Trump's making, which is you can't trust, you know, any authority of any kind except me, you know, that'll appeal to his core. And that's about it. Well, it may have less appeal at a time when there are these incredible crises in this country and people do turn to authorities and expertise and, and government yeah. to save, save their lives. But another pillar of his strategy is to ignite a culture war, right. you know, that we're, we're tearing down the statues of the great fathers of our nation, um, you know, the leftist uh, fascists uh, who are coming after us. Do you think that'll have any any resonance beyond the the hardcore Trump base? Yes, to some extent, although Roger Stone is not going to be a messenger of that. I mean, having Roger stand up to defend George Washington, I think, will not be you're not going to see that. But (laughs) (laughs) but 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 yeah, yeah, Danny. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I think that is a risk on the Biden side of the equation. History's history. I understand why everything from the Redskins to the Confederate monuments are coming, uh, Redskins name to the Confederate monuments are coming down. But yeah, there that 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 culture war stuff matters, and Trump will get whatever of that there is. I don't think it's enough in this situation. I mean, this reminds me sort of of the the flag years ago. There was a big thing over flag burning and, uh, you know, a constitutional amendment, some kind of law or amendment to protect the flag and all of that. And the right wing went nuts over it and they thought it was the greatest thing ever, greatest issue ever. It was, in the end, fundamentally meaningless. And I think in a situation where the country and the economy are so beset by various deep crises, I, I don't see the culture war thing working. And by the way, to the extent that it culture is the number one issue, it's it's flipping in the other direction to some extent. The culture wars are changing. They're part of the problem with focusing everything on, on culture is uh, demographics determine culture to a great extent. 
and the demographics the demographics are changing very fast. And ultimately, if the Republicans just pursue the culture war, they're painting themselves into a cultural corner. That's sort of what's already happened. I mean, I view, yeah. I view Donald Trump as the right. last stand of the old white is right culture, and it's gonna it's gonna sink beneath the waves at some point. Probably pushed by COVID and the economy, it could be this year. Do you think that Republicans who are not, you know, hardcore Trumpites, but you know, have gone along with him, particularly in the Senate, are realizing that they are, you know, staring over the abyss at this point, and that there is a uh, likely electoral route headed for them in November, in which you know they don't just lose the White House, they lose the Senate, the Democrats get a bigger control of the House, and I just wondered if they realize that. What do they do? How, you know, will we see more and more of them distancing themselves from Trump and even, you know, standing up and opposing him? I don't think we'll get to the latter point. Yeah, we're, we're already in the distancing phase with a few. But I think they've, they've made their fate here. I don't think there's any real realistic escape. They'll try. They'll move. They'll tiptoe. I think you're going to see progressively... If the, especially if the numbers don't, poll numbers don't change, continue tiptoeing away. But I also, I also think that for most of the elected Republicans, it's probably too late. I don't know that they can convincingly do it. I think you're, it's interesting that I saw the first, not only uh, Mitt Romney opposing the uh, Stone uh, commutation, Pat Toomey did too in Pennsylvania. But, you know, I started as a reporter in Kentucky, so I always look to Mitch McConnell, who's up this year. I don't think he's under any real threat to win re-election in Kentucky. But surely he must understand that he, the chances of his being the mi- mi- minority leader next year, as opposed to majority leader, are probably better than 50-50 at this point. And, uh, yeah, Trump's, I, I, you know, again... History can be a guide, but history can put blinders on you, too. Trump did it this way. He threaded the needle in 2016. I think the demographic changes in the country, the political changes in the country, the combination of COVID and the economy are going to make it very difficult for him to do the same thing this time. I think people like Mitch McConnell are smart enough to know it. But, for example, in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell is completely stuck. Trump won Kentucky by 32 points. He won Kentucky by more than uh, he won Alabama. So uh, Mitch isn't going anywhere. And how credible he can be in terms of guiding the rest of the Republican caucus in the Senate away from Trump without risking his own neck, I don't know. You see, he's kind of stuck as the leader in a red state uh, that he can't afford to distance himself from Trump in that place. How, yeah, I'm just uh, hey, looking at uh, real clear politics right now. New poll out in Arizona uh, showing uh, Kelly, the Democrat, eight points up, nine points up over McSally, the Repu- incumbent Republican senator. I mean, one by one in Montana, Bullock is up over Danes. It seems to me all the stars are in alignment. Well, for yeah, 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 but I would just caution you, Mike, I would, Mike and Danny, I would caution you, and you know this as well, if not better than I. This is uh, July. You got the rest of July, August, September, October, you know, almost still almost four months. That is a lifetime in politics. And 
I would just uh, beware of drawing conclusions about tsunamis before we've seen the first rainfall. That cautionary note notwithstanding, I saw that uh, Biden, the Biden campaign, putting out their first TV ads in Texas. Uh, there, a lot of Democrats are starting to push Biden to play hard in, in that state. Democrats have been in the wilderness for decades. Do you think Biden has a chance of winning Texas? Maybe, maybe not, but there's a larger purpose there, Danny, in my view, which is that there are progressives in all of these states, that is, people to the left, the left of Biden. I know that from Kentucky, where Charles Booker, the African-American candidate from Louisville, almost won the primary, almost beat Amy McGrath, the uh, former Marine pilot who is your classic conservative Democrat designed for Kentucky to take on Mitch. Well, the, the progressive guy almost beat her, came within a few thousand votes of beating her with a late charging campaign. Same in Texas. There are a lot of, Beto, you know, Beto O'Rourke types and other, even to the, much to the left of Beto. Biden could send a signal to the progressive wing of the whole party by competing in those places. You see, you see it's, 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 he's got a chance in Texas, but just as important He's telling everybody, you know, we're going to take down the right wing everywhere. We're going to go after them all over the place. The sense of movement, the idea that it's not just a campaign, but a movement to create that sense is not easy for Joe Biden at his age and station. But if he can do that, then the possibility of a tsunami type result increases. So, yes, I think for the whole larger feel of the thing, they should definitely as a tactic, compete in all of those states. Is he, is he likely to win Texas? No. Is he likely to energize a lot of the Democratic base by trying to do it, uh, to taking on the Republicans in a state that's been one of the anchors of the conservative Republican Party? Absolutely. So, yeah, they're going to do it. And I must say, you can always tell what's going on in a campaign based on whether you get a lot of stories of internal dissension or not leaking out, you know, the Trump camp is full of, well, you saw the front page of the Post today. They're going after Brad Parscale. You're going to see a constant roiling and change and craziness around Trump, whereas Jen Dillon O'Malley and Ron Klain and the other people running the, the Biden campaign, it's smooth sailing there. Nobody's disagreeing on anything. They've largely co-opted Bernie. I think Bernie's decided Bernie's feeling guilty for having basically helped elect Trump last time around. And Bernie's doing pretty much everything he can, surprisingly, to help out. They got a chance. It's it's fascinating. That's to watch. a that's a really it's a really good point. You look at the two, well, the previous Democratic campaigns. I don't remember how much dissension there was in the Clinton campaign, but certainly Obama was totally locked down and unified totally, and disciplined. Totally, totally. Uh, but Kerry, as I recall, in two thousand and four. You know, I think he fired his uh, campaign leadership uh, not too long before the election and started over again. Yeah. So that's I mean, that's 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 where things stand. I think Roger Stone is, is to wrap up. Roger Stone is symbolic. The commutation of Stone is symbolic of everything Trump stands for by way of creating havoc. And that's what brought him in, and that's what's that's how he's gonna that's how he's gonna go out. And I think you'll see Stone. Ironically enough, Stone is gonna work the evangelical circuit for Trump. He's going to uh, be on Fox decrying the justice system. And I, I'm 
I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to be talking to Trump. Oh, I, I was just going to say, Howard, I think that's really the the ultimate yeah. takeaway from this. If he talked to Trump, you know, 25 times during 2016, I think it's going to yeah. end up being a lot more than that this time, because who else does Trump have to go to to hear and he trusts, what he and wants he trusts to hear? And, and right. in the manner of uh, the Godfather, Roger's done his time, so to speak. Uh, he's he's done battle with the evil prosecutors and and uh, not turned. And Trump has got to uh, em- knowing Trump, he'll embrace him. He'll double down on him between now and November. So. All right. So so just in wrapping up here, because yes. uh, I got you mentioning Roger Stone working the evangelical vote for, for Trump. <laughs> I, I, I want to I want I want to end quoting your excellent piece in The Washington Post uh, in which yeah. you interviewed Stone. What you said was no one can make up Roger Stone. No one should want to. <laughs> I think that is a no one could make this shit up. I think that is a fitting uh, final words for this uh, podcast. OK, you, uh, Howard, thank you so much. So great to have you on again and uh, be part it's of It's wonderful. It's great. Uh, anytime, you guys. Thanks to veteran political reporter Howard Feynman and Yahoo News' own national correspondent Alex Nazarian for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.